Galatians is Paul's letter to the churches in the region of Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey. And what is happening is that um, Paul has planted these churches, and then he's left to plant more churches. And in his absence, there are these group of Jewish Christian missionaries who come to the churches in Galatia, and they say to these baby Christians who Paul has just preached the gospel to, they say, that, they say hey guys, the, the gospel that Paul preached to you is not enough. You, if, you, if you really want to know that what you received is the real thing, is the authentic article, if you, if you want proof that Jesus is among you, then you will, you'll be, men, you'll become circumcised. And women, you will keep a kosher home. And you will follow Mosaic laws. And these are Gentiles. These are folks who have no idea what it means to be culturally Jewish. They don't know what that means. But they love Jesus. And so they're like, okay, we'll do that. But Paul is like, no. So in his letter, Paul's like, no, no, no. And what we've been saying is that this is why Galatians is the freedom letter. Paul is saying it's grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. Jesus plus nothing. And we've been saying here, as we've journeyed through Galatians, that it's not simply, Paul is not just saying free, that you, as follower of Jesus, you are free from something. We say the, that you are free for something. That most Christians, most people who follow Jesus, their story is incomplete. They say, I once was, and I now am. Amazing grace, how sweet the song, right? But what we're saying at Vineyard Cleveland is that story is incomplete. You weren't just saved from something, you are saved for something. And when the Spirit of God takes up residence in your heart and in your life, He's transforming you into new creation. God is all about new creation. And new creation is all about transforming the whole world. And that seems like a, a broad kind of stroke to paint, doesn't it? But it works itself out in very practical, everyday kind of ways. As, he, as he's turning you into new creation, you get the opportunity to play in turning the earth into new creation. As we've said here before, we're not going... Jesus didn't die on the cross to take you to heaven after you die. Ah! This is not what it means to be saved. It's not fire insurance. Jesus didn't die on the cross to take you to heaven after you die. Jesus died on the cross to put heaven into you and to bring life to every area of your community, to every relationship. We talked about last week how freedom uh, influences and accelerates our relationship. 
We should be experiencing accelerating freedom in our relationships. And we talked about what that means and why so often our relationships don't look that way. They're not growing in freedom. We're, we're stuck on heartaches and hang-ups and hurts from the past and from how a mother or a father treated us, how, how our spouse has treated us, and, and the Lord is, is in our midst to usher in a new freedom an accelerating freedom, a growing freedom in our relationships. And so today, we pick up the story in Galatians 5, the narrative, I should say, in Galatians 5, and we're going to talk about the fruit of the Spirit. What is the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives? So we're going to read Galatians 5, 22 and 23, just two verses There's so much packed in these two little verses. We could spend a whole series just on the fruit of the Spirit. Today we'll just dedicate one teaching to the fruit of the Spirit, although we could stay here for a while. The Bible uses fruit a lot of times. Literal fruit uh, like olives and grapes and figs. Literal fruit, the Bible's talking about that. But more often than not, the Bible is talking about fruit in a symbolic sense. There's always this sense of symbolism behind how the writers of the narrative use the word fruit. You talk about the f- children being the fruit of a mother's womb. Words being the fruit of a man or woman's mouth. Fruit is used uh, to describe productiveness or effectiveness uh, in ancient culture and also in our culture today. In some places outside of church culture, we hear being fruitful. Somebody's being fruitful when they accomplish a task or they get something done and they do it well. That's being fruitful. So fruit is, is used quite a bit in the Bible. And we're going to pick at, <laughs> no, Unintended. Pick at, pick fruit. Yeah. So I've, I've scattered some fruit idioms into today's message, into today's talk, because I'm clever, that I thought you may enjoy. So before we dig into those, let's just read it really quickly. Galatians 5 Verse 22, we read this. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. It's so good. Let's keep on reading it. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and its desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Against such there is no law. And the fruit, the first, first fruits, there's another one. Okay, the first uh, fruit idiom that I'll draw your attention to, well, a couple, I've sort of combined them here, is that when we look at the fruits of the Spirit, we're not to artificially categorize them. We're not to compare them like apples to oranges or cherry picking. No cherry picking allowed. 
we're not to artificially classify or categorize the fruit of the Spirit. Now, oftentimes when you hear a teaching or preachers will come to you and talk to you about the fruits of the Spirit, they'll split them up into categories. And they say, well, love, joy, peace, that's God word. And, and gentleness and kindness, those are man word and heart word. And, and, and also they're, these are relational gift, fruits of the Spirit. And these are, these are more responsive fruits of the Spirit. And all that really is, is a, a device used by preachers to make congregations think that that preacher is really smart. We really don't see this playing out in the narrative of Galatians. They're one list together. It's a list of items that Paul is describing working together. We'll dig in more to that in a second. So it's unfair to put that on the text, to break them up into classifications. When Paul talks about the fruits of the Spirit one bowl, bananas, apples, pineapples, everything in the same bowl. By way of general observation, the fruit of the Spirit should not be set in opposition to the gifts of the Spirit. We're not to cherry pick the easy ones, y'all. Sure, it's good that you have joy when everything is shining in your life. You have a job and a roof over your head and you've got friends who love you and people are blowing up your Facebook feed. You know, life is good. You're getting all kinds of likes on social media. You're getting that little affirmation on the shoulder. Life is good. Easy to have joy in those times. And so you say, I'll cherry pick joy as a fruit of the Spirit. It's convenient. We're not to cherry pick and we're not to separate the fruits of the Spirit from the gifts of the Spirit. There's nothing in this text that would lead to the constant suggestion of conservative evangelicals that the fruit of the Spirit is more important than the gifts of the Spirit. Or the constant message that sets the Spirit's fruit in opposition to the Spirit's gifts. So in standard evangelical preaching, you'll hear this message. Well, there's nine fruits of the Spirit, and there's nine gifts of the Spirit. And if we're forced to choose, of course, we're always choosing the fruit of the Spirit over the gifts of the Spirit. Who says that... In a Christian church, you should be forced to choose between the fruits of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. It's like you're getting ready to board an airplane for Detroit, and you're asked the question, which one would you prefer, the right wing or the left wing? Likewise, With the fruits of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit, Paul is saying that you need both. And and as a community, Vineyard Cleveland, we know and value without a shadow of a doubt that God is calling to produce a church in us and through us as Vineyard Cleveland 
both committed to the gifts of the Spirit and the fruits of the Spirit, working together. Working together. Gifts and fruit. They're not opposed to one another. And by the way, this is the kind of church that God wants to produce, not only in Vineyard Cleveland, but also in underground churches in China, in, in mega churches in, in Brazil, and little tiny house churches in Cambodia. This is God's desire to produce a church that blends both the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. That's his desire. So I would encourage you to reject the, this constant selling and setting of the opposition of the fruits of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. It's not biblical. Fields and orchards. When we're looking at the fruits of the Spirit, we're looking at them not as one blueberry patch or one apple orchard, but rather the fruits of the Spirit are like a blueberry patch and an apple orchard on the same farm. On the same farm, fields and orchards. In other words, all of the virtues that we read here are to be practiced together. You can't specialize the fruit of the Spirit. You can't say, well, you know, in 2016, I really feel like I'm supposed to work on my love. I'm going to do that this year. And in 2017, I'm going to work on patience. I'm going to really work on being a patient person. And 2018, so <laughs> 2018, self-control. You can't specialize the gifts uh, or the fruit of the Spirit. Now, sometimes we become more aware of a serious shortfall regarding one of these virtues. Sometimes we feel the Holy Spirit's conviction regarding our lack of gentleness or kindness or self-control. But these things must always be held together. They're like individual facets on a diamond rather than a basket of strawberries. You see? And when you take time to reflect on the individual fruit of the Spirit, you quickly realize why this must be so, why all of the fruit has to work together, or otherwise you probably do not have the genuine fruit of the Spirit. For instance, how can you be faithful to your marriage vows if you don't have any self-control over your sexual appetite? Can you be kind to another person if you are not at the same time gentle? Can you be patient without also being humble? There's this great story about Abraham Lincoln. And Abraham Lincoln had extraordinary patience with loads of different kinds of folks. You guys may know like the face value thing of Abraham Lincoln keeping folks on his cabinet from a different party purposely because he valued the perspective of the other. But I read this story recently about Lincoln where he would just sit down and listen to grievances of virtually everyone, complaints, grievances of everybody. It didn't matter. He'd sit down with an army private or a widow of four kids, a mother who had lost her four children in the Civil War. And one of the people who worked with Lincoln for a long time said Lincoln's patience was rooted in his extraordinary humility. 
You see, he was absolutely unconscious of his position. This official said that Mr. Lincoln never seemed to be aware that his place or his business as president was essentially different from the obscurity of his private life in a country town in the past. How good is that? Do we see that at all anywhere in politics today? No, the answer is we don't. We do not see that, you know, in the age of exposure, this private and public thing that Lincoln had happening. Can you be patient with people if at the bottom you see yourself as better than them or as superior to them? Nope. All of these qualities need to work together. Otherwise, they're not really the fruit of the Spirit. Next, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. It's a good one. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. All of these virtues are not simply blessings of God detached from his own person. These virtues are not like other blessings. For instance, out of the two sunny days a year in Cleveland, you could be outside, (laughs) hopefully, And you know I'm exaggerating. This year's been wonderful, weather-wise. And you could say, God, thank you for your blessing of the sunny day. It's so wonderful. You're blessing me with the sun. Now, God may bless you with the sunny day. God is not the sun. He created the sun, but he is not the sun. God could bless you with the shade of a tree. But God is not a tree. He creates the tree. When we say these things of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, when we say these things, we're saying what we're saying, that we desire these things. (laughs) Lighten me up this week. When we say that we desire to be more loving people, more joyous people, more patient people, gentle people. What we're really saying is, I want more of you, God. I want more of you. Because, because when we're searching for these things as, a me, as, an, as an end to themselves, it never works out. We'll talk, about more, we'll talk about that more in a second. More to say at that at 6 and 11. But, the, but every fruit is a quality of God. It's not detached from his person. These nine things are what God is like. So that as the spirit of God comes into your life, it produces into your life what he is. God is love. 1 John 4, 7 through 10. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. 
And of course, you know John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So when the Spirit of God is manifesting himself through your life, you are also, as a byproduct, going to become more loving. Because you're simply saying, God, I want more of you. God is joyful. Look in John 15, 11. I have told you this so that my joy in you and that your joy may be complete. Has it ever occurred to you that when we gather together to worship on a Sunday morning or you gather with your small group to worship God, wherever two or more are gathered, wherever you gather to worship God, that you are coming to worship the the most joyful being on the planet. God is full of joy. He's full of joy. But so oftentimes, we don't picture God like this. We picture God as some of our fathers were. You know, with a pipe and sitting down complaining about how his brother-in-law stole the business from him and how the government's too big and ruining our lives. And that's how we picture God. But that's not who God is. He's the most joyful being on the face of the planet. He's filled with, to the brim and overflowing with joy. He's not this distant, brooding, bitter, aloof God, angry at what life has dealt him. That's not what God is like. God is joyful. He's peaceful. John 14, 27. Peace I leave you. My peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. World gives, take backs. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. In Ephesians 2.14, For he himself is, is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. And to wrap up this point, God is patient. Here's what we read in Exodus As he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Second Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. In the Old Testament, when we read over and over again that God is slow to anger, Or in the New King James Version, how God is long-suffering. Or that God is patient. That phrase, long-suffering or patient, mentioned many times in the Old Testament, literally means that God is long of nose. That God is long of nose. 
Maybe it's because anger is clearly seen on the face and sometimes expressed by snorting or wheezing. Those are different. Wheezing through the nose. I've always felt pity for those who have been cursed with a, like my wife Sarah, with a cute little button nose. Instead of the more godlike noses of us, you know, Italians or Jewish or Eastern European folks displaying the long noseness of God. <laughs> long of nose today what we would say in today's culture we would say that God has a long fuse that his fuse is long God is not hot tempered he's not short tempered and just you know he's not schizophrenic he's not he's not blowing up at the drop of a hat or the drop of a dime Or the drop of anything else, it doesn't surprise him. God has the longest fuse on the planet. Why? (laughs) In the book of Numbers, God tells Moses that the people of Israel have offended and tested him ten different times. And yet, he still refuses to destroy them. Four hundred years he waited before he judged the Canaanites. Decades before he judged the Israelites. And I would just like to point out one thing about God's patience before we move on. Because God holds up on disciplining us or judging us. We can, believe, we can begin to believe that God is never going to discipline us. That he has just winked at our sin. Paul addresses this kind of attitude in Romans. Romans 2.4, do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Listen, God is not a big softy. As lots of churches in North America would have you believe. God does not just accommodate and accommodate and accommodate Those of you who have been through a little bit of life know what I'm talking about. God isn't out for your accommodation. Another way to put it is the world does not revolve around you. It revolves around Him. It centers on His presence. This life is not out to accommodate you either. Jesus said in this life you will have trouble. You can expect that. Don't be surprised by that. But the trouble's a sign of his favor. I know that. (laughs) We can't choose one quality over the other. He's not like us. And we can't emphasize one trait, his kindness, over another trait, his patience. We must never say to ourselves, God, well, God is patient or loving, and this overcomes God's holiness or justice. He is always all of these qualities, all at the same time. Bearing fruit, got to move on. Bearing fruit in and out of season. Or 
the fruit of the Spirit manifests or expresses itself when we least expect it. Isn't that the case? We've been talking about recently here about the growth of our children for parents, about how if you go away for a little bit and you come back, what do you say? Dang, you've grown up. Stop growing. I can't, Dada. I just keep on growing up. Stop it. Stop growing up. Winnie never listens to me. My daughter never listens to me. She just keeps on getting bigger and bigger. And I tell her, stop growing. She won't listen. Isn't that, isn't that the way we are with God? We don't realize the growth. A lot of times the movement or growth of the Holy Spirit is literally indetectable to the human eye or mind. A lot of times the Holy Spirit is moving in and through you and you won't even, you won't notice it. And I want to encourage you this morning that you are having an impact on other people's lives. You are growing in what it means to follow Jesus in, in accelerating and growing freedom. You might not see it, but it comes at times that are least expected. These, remember, we said these are qualities from the person. of They can't be detached from who God is. And so he's putting himself in you. You can be sure of that. He's not just... He's not just like shoveling up some love and like scooping it into our lives. It's not what God is doing. He says, I'm coming to live inside of you. I'm living inside of you. I'm living inside of you. And he's, and he's growing that so that these fruits of the Spirit express themselves at the least expectant times. So, for example, you know that your love is not a natural love. It's a spiritual love. It's a Holy Spirit-given love. When you love a person who is utterly unworthy of being loved, that's when you know. They've messed you over. They've treated you poorly. They've betrayed your trust, and you still love. And you look inside, and you say, where'd that come from? Have you, has that happened to you? You surprised yourself before? You've extended grace or forgiveness to someone? And before you know it, the words are tumbling out of your mouth, and you say, where did that come from? Definitely not me, because I know me, and I know what's in there. And if it were up to me, I would definitely not be forgiving that person. You see what I'm saying? That's how you know you're growing. You know, you still desire the other person's well-being, you still persist in refusing, not to, uh, refusing to gossip about them. You refuse to engage in vengeful fantasies, returning evil for good. You know then that your love is coming from the Holy Spirit. When you're at peace in your circumstances, when you should be falling apart, when everybody at your job is freaking out because everybody's talking about layoffs, but you're not worried at all. Why are you not worried at all? Because you, you know that your, your life does not consist of your job. You're at peace. You're, and, and you know that your life doesn't even consist of your family. You can be at peace when all else around you is in chaos. 
Your life's not wrapped up in what someone else is doing. Your life is hidden. That's the paradox. Your life is hidden with Christ. And nothing in this world shakes you. Because you're, you're hidden. You see? You know it's the fruit of the Spirit when there's no reason on earth that you should ever show these qualities. Because you know the true expression of these qualities can never come from human hearts. It just can't. Yeah, there's natural sort of things that play into this. Uh, But you know ultimately when you express these fruits, they don't come from you. They're gifts. These fruits are gifts of the Holy Spirit expressed through you. Okay. Just wanted to look at a few things before we stop. Joy. These individual pieces that I felt like God was highlighting this week for us as a community. Is that uh, the life that intends for the life that God intends for his children is a joy-filled life. But that's not how people um, outside of this building view Christians. Do you know that? For any of you who um, have spent any time outside of this church, there's people out there. Earthlings. (laughs) Earthlings are everywhere. And oftentimes, the way that they view your life, let me just tell you how they view Christians. Do you know, well, I can't tell you specifically how each person who doesn't follow Jesus views Christians. That would be impossible. But I can tell you the general perception, because I've talked with earthlings out there. I've gone away on a mission, and I've talked with earthlings, and I've come back to share with you. That the perception of Christians in culture today is not that we are filled with joy. It's, it's really just not that. You know, most people would say, I hear what you're saying, preacher, about Jesus, you know, dying for our sins and raising from the dead, eternal life, blah, blah, blah. That's great. <laughs> and I'm sure you could argue point by point why it's true. I hear what you're saying, mom or dad, about why I should like, you know, date only Christians, and that's great. Morality, gotcha. I hear what you're trying to say. All of these good arguments that I can't refute, that there really is a God, and he's really involved in the world. But for me to bring my life under God and start to do his will, I have to give up so much fun. Do you know the way that folks in culture view the church is pretty much like, or viewing the Christian journey is like eating shredded wheat 
without the milk. <laughs> or, <laughs> that going to church and following Jesus is more akin to reaching in your refrigerator for that two liter that's been in there for about a week and a half of Coke, pop. Call it pop in the north, right? Everything's Coke in the south. Reaching for that, and the lid hasn't been put. Better yet, it's been left on the counter for a week and a half. Not even in the refrigerator, it's warm. And taking that two liter bottle of pop and chugging that thing down, no fizz. There's no fizz. Those of you who work in the marketplace can affirm that what I'm saying is true. This is the way it is. But those of us who are so incubated in church culture and what we think, (laughs) we just have no idea how the world is looking in right now. And that's not the way that God has desired for the church to be. It's just not designed to be flat or tasteless or boring. Do you know that the word joy in the, in the Bible is used more than 400 times? That's a lot. That's a lot of times. It's a major theme in the Bible. In the Old Testament, there's 27 different Hebrew words to describe joy. In fact, here's one of my favorite verses all time. Two verses. I'll read you two verses. Zephaniah 3, 14 and 17. Listen to this. Sing, daughter Zion. Shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you, in his love. He will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Do you know that in just two verses, the Hebrew word for joy or concept for joy, eight different words are used in these two verses alone. God is filled up on joy. Do you know that when we read this and hear shout aloud Israel, when we read he will take great delight in you, we read it in a really proper uh, British way. We say, oh, he'll take great delight in us. Oh, Cheerio, I get that. But that is not the translation, the Hebrew translation of the Lord taking great delight in singing over you. Singing over you. When you, when you, you shouldn't read singing over you. What you should think of is like one of those late night R&B radio stations. You know what I'm talking about? Those songs. That's what you should hear when you hear that the Lord is singing over you. It's romantic. That's dangerous what I just said. It's romantic how God is saying that he's singing over you. And when he says that he's taking great delight in you, what he's saying when oftentimes we think that God is just in to tolerate us. Like he's like, oh crap, I got to spend time with Josh again. Oh no, Gabby, I've got to spend time with her again. She's really annoying. That's not the way that God sees us. He takes great delight. Do you know what it's saying? The Hebrew translation is saying, God is the greatest cosmic cheerleader on the face of the earth. 
He's doing, the Hebrew translation is that God is doing backflips over you. He's so excited. He's so wrapped up in who you're created to be. And he's so tickled that you would want to spend time with him. That's who God is. He's active. He's so active. All of these verbs describing joy. God is doing stuff. He's not just taking great delight. I take great delight in you. Like he's some timid lover. God is taking great delight in you. The Bible's really concerned about joy. Now, in the Bible, joy is not an end in itself. This is utterly (laughs) un-American. Unlike our founding document, the Declaration of Independence, which talks about what? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In the Bible, people do not pursue joy. People pursue God. And joy is the byproduct of life with God. You go after God in your life and you get joy thrown in. Ding, ding, ding. Winner. In fact, the most unhappy people on the, on the face of the earth are the ones who consistently go after happiness. The woman who says, I was raised in church, but I really want to be happy, so I'm going to date a non-Christian guy. That will make me happy. Of course, this guy wants to have sex with me, so I don't want to lose him or the happiness I have with him, so we'll have sex. That made him happy. Maybe it will make me happy. Maybe then I can get him to make a commitment and we can get married and then I would be really happy. If I was only married, I'd be happy. Maybe if we can get married, I'll be happy. Maybe if we have a a child, then I'll be happy. The most unhappy people in the world are people who constantly go after happiness rather than after God. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled by the hashtag blessed life on Instagram. Don't be fooled by the hashtags on social media, the YOLO and BOGO and whatever. They may be putting hashtag blessed on social media, but deep inside, if they're going, if they're not going after God, if their eyes are, if our eyes are not firmly fixed upon the person of Jesus, We'll fall short of happiness every time. That's the way he set it up to be. Who was it, St. Augustine, who said that our, there's a hole, there's a God-shaped hole in our lives that can only be filled by the presence of God? I thought taking this job would make me happy, you say, because the job paid a lot, but the job demanded my whole life. And so now I do everything for my career, thinking that's going to make me happy, and I'm 50 now, and I'm not happy, and I'm distant from my spouse, and I'm not close to my kids, and maybe you think a cool car will make you happy. Cool car is not going to make you happy. Maybe having an affair will make you happy. You're looking at another 15 years before you retire, and once you retire and get out of the daily grind, that's going to make you happy. The most unhappy people in the world are the people who are aiming at happiness rather than aiming at God. 
man, I really got to stop now. (laughs) Gentleness and self-control. Briefly, the virtue of self-control. We live in a world in which we voyeuristically read about and listen to stories of people whose lives have just been utterly destroyed, and we read about it for entertainment. We love it. We love stories like uh, Tiger Woods or Anthony Weiner, you know, these guys who, as a result of a lack of self-control, have had their lives destroyed. So many folks live such out-of-control lives. Something in... Outside of them is pulling on their strings. Other people, other circumstances, their boyfriends, their mothers, their work situations. The virtue of self-control teaches us that we have to take charge of our own lives, including taking responsibility for our own thoughts and taking responsibility for our own feelings. We're told in the Bible that we're to take every thought captive and make that thought obedient to the person of Jesus. Does that, come, does that thought come under the lordship of Jesus, the authority of Jesus? And if it doesn't, I'm not going there. If that thought that crosses my mind, that person's judging me, does that, come under, does that thought come under the, the lordship of Jesus? If not, I'm, I'm disposing of that thought. I'm not going there. No, I'm not going to go into that lustful line of thinking. I'm not going there in my mind. You take charge of your thoughts. You take charge of your feelings. That's self-control. So how do we get these things? We live by the Spirit, Paul tells us in Galatians 5.25. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step. With the Spirit. There's no way I'm going to get done with it. Um, do you know the song, uh, James Taylor fans? Anybody? Come on, dude. Only two? Are you serious? Yeah. James Taylor. So good. You know that song, um, I forget what it's called. The one um, that goes, if I'm well... If I'm well, you can tell she's been with me now. You know that one? You know, he's singing about um, this change of countenance. How when he's, when, he, uh, when he's away from his lover, there is still something of her with him. You see? There's something about his countenance. Likewise, in our journey with Jesus, when we've been with him, oh, when we've been with him, have you been with him? You can tell the folks in the eyes of those who have been with him. It's in the eyes, isn't it? When you get around somebody who loves to get around in intimate times of fellowship with the Lord Jesus, you look into their eyes and there's this deep well of soulfulness that's happening. Or it's not in the eyes, perhaps. You get with them and you're like, and you walk away after time of being together with them and you're like, dang, what is cooking in their lives? What do they have that I don't have in me? 
When we're well, you can tell. We, in other words, it's harder to hide. It's, um, it's harder to hide than you might think. It's harder to hide than you might think. People can tell. It's like when you greet somebody on Sunday morning and you're like, you're like, hey, how's it going? And, and they're like stiff as a rock and they're like, I'm doing, I'm doing great. You know, I'm just doing awesome. Yeah, you're doing amazing, aren't you? Your shoulders are like rocks. You're so tense because you've been working 72 hours and neglecting your family. You're doing really great. You can tell. When we've been with Jesus, you can tell. It's like a pregnant woman who's walking down the street and you look and you say, at some point, there's been an act of intimacy that's happened there between a man and a woman. Yes? The same goes for us as followers of Jesus. If you see the fruits of the Spirit manifested or expressed through others, or surprising yourself and even in yourself. That is a product of times of shared intimacy with Jesus. Staring, it's the power of the gaze. (laughs) Okay, we're not going to get through this, so I'll just, okay. We need the Holy Spirit. It's the power of the gaze. This is how you get the fruits of the Spirit. How do you get the fruits of the Spirit in your life? Well, you can't go after being happy. That's not going to do it. Trying to get happy. How do you get the fruits of the Spirit? Here's how you get the fruits of the Spirit. This might be a rerun, but it's, it doesn't make it any less true. You get the fruits of the Spirit by waking up on Monday morning at 6.30 and opening your Bible and sticking your face in there and saying, I need you, God. I can't do life alone. Your words are breath. Your words are heaven. Your words are freedom for me. And I need you, Holy Spirit, or otherwise, I don't know what I'm going to do outside. I don't know what's going to happen. And then you get a cup of coffee, and you go to work. And here's what you do. On Tuesday, you wake up at 6.30, and you bury your face in the Bible. Because you say, I've tried all of the other different philosophies. I've tried satisfying my desires and pleasure. I've tried to find truth in my spouse or my kids or my family or who I know or what I've done or my successes. And I haven't found it there. Lord, speak to me. Light me up inside and animate me with something of your presence so that I can experience you in a way that I've never experienced you before. And then you grab a cup of coffee and you go to work. And then on Wednesday, you might be a bit tired. It's hump day. And you wake up, so at like seven. 
And you come down, and it's wintertime, so it's still dark, and no one sees you. No one sees you in Starbucks with your Bible open. You're, you're, you're in your corner. You're in your prayer closet, and you open the Word, and you hear the thoughts of God over you, and you say, I need you, God, to speak to me. And you open your eyes and you gaze at the eyes of Jesus. You don't gaze at the phone screen, which only gives you your reflection. It's glass and can only reflect yourself. You, you stare at the person of Jesus in the eyes of Jesus. And you say, you tell me who I am. You define who I am. You wake up in the morning and you start doing this. You tell me who I am. You tell me who I am. And you start finding that those dots and stickers that people want to stick on you throughout the day and advertising messages to sell you and try to tell you who you are don't stick anymore. Those things don't stick anymore to you because you've been with him. You've seen him. You've looked into his eyes and he's told you. The father's told you. And continues to tell you, just like he spoke over Jesus when Jesus was baptized, as the dove descended upon Jesus, the Father said, this is my son. Listen to him. In him, I'm well pleased. And you start to receive that for yourself. I'm your son. I'm your daughter. You're well pleased in me. You're not pleased with what I, with what I do or do not do. You're pleased in who I am and in, in my person and who you've created me to be. And you hear the Father's voice over your heart and you just keep on staring. You just keep on staring. You just keep on staring and you block out with blinders. You know, like the horse blinders, you block out. All of the other things that people want to stick on you and tell you who you are. And you put on the horse blinders and you say, I'm only, I'm only heading to you. You've got the bit in my mouth and I'm heading towards you, Jesus. And I won't be satisfied and my hunger won't be quenched until I can just see you. Just gaze on your eyes. And that's the work of new creation. It's really boring. It's every day. It's really mundane. It's step by step, looking into Jesus' eyes. That's how we get the fruits of the Spirit in our life. And we're going to pray over one another. And we're going we're to release that in one another. That hunger for the Holy Spirit. And as we stand, this is the closing, is that all of these fruits, all of these fruits of the Spirit are not to be enjoyed and expressed and harvested individualistically. That's never what Paul intended. He intended for these things, these virtues to be expressed in a community, in us, through us, through our hearts and our hands. What are you going to do? Love yourself in your closet? Have joy with yourself? <laughs> really? 
It takes two people <laughs> to experience. This is relationship. Paul's saying these fruits of the Spirit are meant to be expressed in community. In community. And you can sure tell. If you can tell individually, you can tell communally. You can tell. If you walk into a small group or you walk into a church and these nine fruits of the Spirit are being expressed, it's electric in the air. You feel it. Something's cooking here. Something's happening here. It might not look like it yet. Something's brewing. It's pregnant. Something's gonna, there's going to be new life here. Something's happening. It's marked and defined. The church marked and defined and identified by the fruits of the Spirit. It's meant to be expressed community. And when it is, I will tell you what, and this is no, please don't hear this with any, any tinge, any, any ounce of guilt at all. When it is, the kingdom will happen among us. These seats will fill up. Because you know why? People can't stand to be away from it. When the kingdom is happening, when fullness is, is being stepped into, when love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, all of these things are being expressed, you won't be able to keep people away from your small group. We canceled small group the other night and four people still showed up. When it's happening, and it's time, and, and, and we're just going to pray and release this over one another. If you're saying, you say, you know, I want more of the Holy Spirit. I don't, I don't know, and, and please don't every hand in the room go up. I know we all want the Holy Spirit, but maybe, and maybe you're doing well right now. And, but, but maybe you're in a season, you're like, I do, I want more of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you look at your life and you're like, dang, I, what I'm experiencing is more like shredded wheat without the milk. It's more like old pop without the fizz. I want joy in my life. I want the Holy Spirit in my life. I want, to see, uh, I want to see the face of Jesus. I want more of the Holy Spirit. Would you raise your hand? You say, that's where I'm living. I want more of the Holy Spirit. 